Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Make no mistake. If you're an author, you're an entrepreneur. You're selling the world on your book, aren't you? Of course, it's not as easy as launching a business and then tossing any old book up on Amazon. That's why I help entrepreneurs publish books on the specific topic and in the specific way that will launch or grow their businesses. Welcome to Entrepreneur Publishing Academy with your professor, Anna David. Hello and welcome to Entrepreneur Publishing Academy with your host and your professor, one and the same, Anna David. On this podcast, I talk to entrepreneurs about how to build a how to publish a book that will help build your business, how to make that book work for you for the rest of your career and life and help you live leave a legacy. So I'm continuing with my theme of series and this series is all about turning your book into a movie or TV show. And for this episode, I have arguably somebody who knows more about this, uh, doing this at the highest level than anyone else who exists. His name is Mike DeLuca. And he has, uh, three of the four times he's turned books into movies, he has been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. And the one time he wasn't nominated, it was for this little movie called Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, So those ones where he was nominated, books he turned into movies, The Social Network, um, which was based on a book called The Accidental Billionaires, Uh, Moneyball, you remember that one, Captain Phillips, Um, you know, and he's a legend. He's an icon in the entertainment industry. He discovered Paul Thomas Anderson and David Fincher and a whole bunch of other people. And in this episode, he talks about the kinds of books that producers are looking to option, how they get optioned, how much money there is uh, in the entertainment world right now that's going out to authors, not to most of us, I'll be honest, but to if your name is something like E.L. James, a lot of it. Um, if you want to find out more um, about Mike and get links to the to where you can download this episode and all the other things, just go to LegacyLaunchpadPub.com slash blog slash DeLuca, and that's D-E-L-U-C-A. And now I give you Michael DeLuca. I've done a lot of podcasts. I love the whole format. It's my favorite. Good. This is going to be your most fun one ever. (laughs) Promise. Promise. So, okay. Let's talk about making a book into a movie. So there are four that you have done. Tiny, tiny movies, Fifty Shades of Grey, Social Network, Moneyball, and uh, what was the last one? Oh, Captain Phillips was based on a, a first-person account by the captain himself. He wrote kind of an autobiographical account of his being held hostage by the Somali hijackers and that whole that whole thing when that happened. So tell me about this process. How, you know, how did, have you, quote, discovered these books? Were they all brought to you? How did each one come to be a project? Oh, totally different, actually. So 
Captain Phillips was one where me and my my producing partner and I went to uh, get the rights, the life rights of Captain Phillips from Richard Phillips himself, you know, after his ordeal was over. Like we we were watching the news and seeing the event happen in real time. And I was I was joking to my producing partner, like if he if he doesn't survive this, it's a Sundance movie. If they, if they actually rescue the guy, it's a big commercial movie and they rescued the guy. So we waited an appropriate amount of time, you know, to we didn't want to bum rush him while he was recovering from from a traumatic incident. And then eventually uh, he had a representative. They agreed to see us. Eventually it led to a meeting with Richard Phillips. And he said, I like you guys. I want to write my book first, but I promise you after I'm done with the book, I'll, I'll come back to you. And he did. He kept his word. He's a great guy, really honorable, a lot of integrity. He wrote his book, um, set it up with a publisher. And then after it was done, um, we received it and then went to meet with him and, and went about finding a writer to adapt his book. Um, and Tom Hanks was already interested in the story just from, again, having seen it on the news. And we kind of had Tom in tow while we were trying to put a writer and a director on the movie. And it, it came together pretty quickly and pretty easily. Um, Moneyball was one that I was given by the studio when I became a producer at Sony, they assigned it to me. And I, I, quickly became like the go-to person for Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball had to approve everything that the movie was doing in terms of a, an adaptation from that book. Um, so, cause we needed Major League Baseball to give us the stadiums and the costumes and the, all the things for like a reduced rate. Otherwise the movie would have been unproducible for the price we wanted to make it with. And they were the books, it's a nonfiction book by Michael Lewis about Billy Bean, who's still the, the, man, the general manager up in Oakland for the Oakland A's. Um, Major League Baseball was kind of speaking for Billy Bean and was presiding over how we handled his life story, what the changes we were going to make from the book. Like Major League Baseball, the organization was the clearinghouse for all the the script approvals and the, the cuts of the movie approvals. And mo my job on that movie uh, was mostly dealing with that kind of li liaison between the studio and Major League Baseball. Social Network was uh, some a book my producing partner, uh, who was the same guy, Dana Brunetti, as, who did Captain Phillips with me. Um, we got this book, The Accidental Billionaires, nonfiction book by Ben Mesrick. And uh, it we we optioned it to Sony and then got this great incoming call that Scott Rudin and Aaron Sorkin were interested in jumping on board. And, you know, Aaron Sorkin is, is like a dream come true as a writer for a producer. So we partnered with them. And then Aaron wrote a first draft that pretty much was the script that Fincher shot. Um, so Captain Phillips and Social Network, we set up Moneyball, I was given and Fifty Shades of Grey, Universal had it already. And were, they were auditioning producers for the writer, the author, because the author, because of, of the phenomenon the book was, um, enjoyed a lot of approvals and got to basically have a bake off for producers. And in the end, like she just picked us. It was my, Dana Brunetti again, who I've done a few movies with and that that was like a very happy assignment, you know, from Universal. So what did you do to woo her? How did you did you walk in and say, like, I'm the biggest fan of the book? Like, how do you how do you get them? I did say I was a fan of the book because I honestly I get a lot of shit for this, but I actually enjoyed the book. I thought she was playing with some really what I liked about the book was that it was a very earnest love story. Like, you know, like at its core, I invested in those characters. I cared about their relationship and there was no cynicism to it. It was a very I thought despite the salacious material is a very earnest story and it kind of charmed me. And I thought she was playing with some really powerful paradigms. Like 
you know, Christian Grey was basically, you know, the handsome prince who just whisked up the, the, the plain, you know, girl, peasant girl up to his giant castle. And it was, it's that Cinderella kind of paradigm that I thought had a lot of collective unconscious kind of juice in a Carl Jungian kind of, you know, storytelling way. And so I talked about a lot of stuff like that. And I might've compared it to Madame Bovary. <laughs> well, I mean, even just like when you start with the collective unconscious, I'm sure this was the most intelligent conversation she oh. <laughs> ever had about 50 We hit it off. I have to, I really respected her achievement because that, that book clearly tapped a nerve. And I thought, I thought we were never going to get it because I thought when the book came out, every studio and producer was chasing it. And I actually said to people at my company, let's not even bother because it's already so down the road that it's too late to jump in. But then she decided to sell it to a studio, Universal, without a producer. So it was just like a bidding war between studios, Universal won. And then then they went about interviewing for producers. And Dana and I were in London shooting uh, Captain Phillips on a stage. It was the stage portion of Captain Phillips. And his agent from CA called him and said, you guys are in London. Why don't you meet with Erica, you know, the author, E.L. James, her agent, her lit agent. She's in London. You guys are in London. They haven't picked a producer yet. And even then I was like, ah, we're never going to get it. So many people have been interviewing. But he dragged me to the meeting because I was a grumpy Gus about it because I'm like, this is never going to happen. And then thank God he did because we actually got it. So in terms of that one, because the author had so much power, uh, how much say did she have over the adaptation? She got to, do they always get to pick the screenwriter? Not at all, right? No, I think, I think you know, if it's a bestseller or a real phenomenon, you know, then the, the as you can imagine, it generates a bidding war between buyers and the, the author can deploy, you know, whether it's Erica or J.K. Rowling or other celebrated authors, they, they can deploy some pretty heavy approvals and Erica had that on on all three movies, you know, script approval, director approval, um, re- changes to the script while in production, like everything really had to go through Erica. Um, in general, how faithful are have these books been, have the movies been to the books? I would say they're very faithful. I mean, the first movie, I think Erica thought there were more departures than she would have liked, but she signed off. Um, and the Second two movies, uh, we shot them both together and they were written by her husband, who is a, a writer and, you know, produced the movies with us and, and wrote the scripts for the for the last two books. They were very, very faithful as because they kind of worked as a team. Um, but, you know, I think I think they're really faithful. I think Erica would say, you know, they ruined parts of my book. Like she was really protective of her audience. She felt like if a comma was moved or if a word was changed from and to the or if we didn't understand the spirit of the characters or we're, we're trying to change something in the name of adaptation. Like sometimes we would pitch, that works great on the page, but you know, film is a visual medium and you get something in film in lightning speed because it's visual as opposed to a book, which you, know, you can spend more time with, you get inside the characters' heads and all the, all the reasons you know, that prose is different from, from visual storytelling. She didn't buy that sometimes on, on the need for adapting and changing and, you know, she gave on some points, we gave on some points. It was kind of like a negotiation more on the first movie, you know, which she had less control over just because she wasn't involved. Her, she didn't have her husband writing the script. And there was a director who had a very strong opinion. This uh, artist, Sam Taylor Johnson. Yeah. yeah. And Dakota, who, you know, who had to perform it and was really like the beating heart of those movies, because in the books, 
um, her character is kind of a cipher because it's all about Christian Grey. Like Erica purposely wanted the female reader, you know, to identify with the fantasy about Christian Grey, not feel like they're Anna. But in the so Dakota had to fill in the blanks and create a character, um, and because it couldn't be a it couldn't be kind of a, a, a cipher on screen. And Dakota had very strong opinions about dialogue that she felt like she could say, as opposed to dialogue from the book that she felt was a little, you know, not not what she wanted to do in the movie. So there was a lot of going back and forth on that first movie, mostly about that kind of stuff. And then it was it was easier on the second the second and third movie. Speaking of Dakota, uh, you know, really the first role that a lot of people saw her in was in The Social Network. Right. <laughs> um, I feel like, I don't know why, but I feel like out of all the movies we're talking about, that one was the least faithful to the book. And the only reason I'm guessing, I have never read the book, though I've thought about it, I think I own it, <laughs> is just that you said Aaron, you know, Aaron Sorkin, you kind of think of him as being creative. Um, obviously the title changed. Um, so how faithful was that, The Social Network? Um. Ben probably wouldn't like me saying this, but Aaron, you're right. Aaron is, is an kind of auteur writer. And he started researching and writing before the book was turned in to us. Mm -hmm. Like he, you know, I, we optioned it to Sony off a uh, outline and Aaron just had an idea in his mind of what he wanted to say with that story and just started and got the book in progress and really did his own thing. I mean, the events are kind of the same, you know, he keyed in on the two, the depositions that that um, Zuckerberg was going through over the suit from um, Andrew Garfield's character, Eduardo. That was kind of the home base of the movie. If you remember, the, the movie cuts back from those deposition scenes. That was Aaron's invention in terms of structure. And it really is, obviously he made up all the dialogue. There's no dialogue in the book. You know, there's, sometimes Ben would quote what people actually said, but for the most part, um, it's it's not like a first person narrative. So you know, Aaron kind of created his own structure and his own screenplay. It's not a very faithful adaptation of that book, but I think with nonfiction books, sometimes, you know, it's, it's a little, it's not really, you can't really do a faithful adaptation because you're even that much more removed from a movie when you're like a nonfiction book, you know, because real life doesn't have dramatic peaks and valleys. You have to bring that, you know, when you're turning it into a narrative. Fiction, fictional books come with that in a way, they come with like a, a story structure, with peaks and valleys and, and rhythm. Nonfiction books, like Moneyball is almost like a math textbook. It's really, it's, it's challenging to pull a narrative from that. But in the end, we had two of the greatest screenwriters working on that, Sorkin, plus Steve Zalian, who of course won an Oscar for Schindler's List. Um, so there's more, I think there was more heavy lifting with our nonfiction books because they don't come with that dramatic structure, but um, yeah. Interesting. Ironically, I would say, your life has its ups and downs. This is not about your life. I mean, when you're like life, the real life doesn't have these dramatic twists and turns. Some people's lives do. Mine does too. It's good. We're not talking about that. That's right true, now. I guess. It's true. <laughs> but it's not, but there's no, but you got to admit about our lives. It's not like you can say there's a, a beginning and a middle and an end and plot points and turning points that exist in a three-act structure. We're more like a never-ending miniseries. Anna here. Now, are you an entrepreneur who wants to write and publish a book about your own failures turned successes? Well, good news. That's what my company, Legacy Launchpad, does. Find out more at LegacyLaunchpadPub.com. That's LegacyLaunchpadPub.com. Now, should you do a book, you ask? I think so. Why? Because you're worth it. Now back to the show. 
True, true. <laughs> Although I, the end, thankfully, we can't talk about that yet. But I could, I could come up with a, a beginning and a middle for both of us. Regardless, I think we could live to two hundred because of all the medical advances. Like we're we're in a generation that could take advantage of cloned organ replacement parts, synthetic skin, biomechanical enhancements. I'm planning to get all that stuff. I want to go to like two fifty. <laughs> I don't. Who wants to live that long? I, I want to see the tenth, hundredth reboot of Batman. My brother works in longevity. That's like his whole thing. Did you know that? I just signed, I didn't know that about your brother, but I signed up for a longevity medical program with this doctor here in Beverly Hills. I'm getting NAD infusions, getting vitamin infusions, exosomes, um, all this kind of injections that are supposed to prolong your life on the back end. The thing, what is the thing that they're all taking? Um, Peptides. I I tried peptides just because I thought it wouldn't make me thin. It was like all (laughs) vanity. It didn't work didn't work um but but so okay the thing with the the zuckerberg thing so why did you need the book why couldn't you just do it without the book well um if you plant a flag at a studio with a a piece of material it kind of scares off other you know players like so that story was obviously in the public domain but ben had organized it into something that was optionable and adaptable and it just kind of plants the flag officially and and kind of inoculates you against copycat projects or other projects uh, happening so that's a little bit it just makes it a little bit easier to own the space also ben's book was was already you know when something is legally vetted by a publisher it makes vetting the screenplay just a little bit easier cuz as long as, you know, Aaron wasn't derogatory or defamatory and stuck to pretty much the events, at least, that was that was already that were already vetted by Ben's book, it just makes the path a little bit easier. I actually did not know that the script then has to be legally vetted. Of course, it yeah. should. But I, I mean, isn't it entertainment? It's complicated, I'm sure. It's got, you know, you can't there are rules about, you know, um, not being derogatory or defamatory. And you have if you can't have things in a screenplay that are negative, that aren't verifiable, you know, or sourceable. So you do need, you you know, the first thing any studio does is make sure we're not going to get sued. And that requires like a real legal vetting of the screenplay and making sure that everything's kind of airtight. Because on Social Network, we didn't have anybody's life rights. It was just based on Ben's book and those depositions, which were public, you know, they were public documents. Um, with Major League Baseball, we had life rights, you know, because we made a deal with M- with Major League Baseball that kind of covered all the characters' life rights. And then Captain Phillips, we we individually went to the different crew members of Phillips and got their life rights. So each situ- each situation is kind of different. Well, let's say um, a writer has written a memoir. Do they want to sell their life rights or their book or either both? How, how does that work? Yeah, usually... Um, like Richard Phillips was, was a memoir yeah. and, and then you option the book, but then you also, when you're ready to make the movie, you also have to make a deal for the life rights. Interesting. Um, so you're, you're uh, too classy to talk about numbers, but I do remember reading that the 50 shades, it was something like 14 million, something insane like that. You probably won't confirm or deny any of this. You, you mean copies sold or, or no. what she got? Paid huh. for the movie rights. I read that. Oh, you can actually, I'm not kidding. I don't remember what Universal paid because I got on the movie after they bought it. So I I actually don't, but that probably sounds about right. (laughs) So, but, so then can you talk about the numbers for those other movies or you won't talk about it? I I would totally talk about it. I literally just don't remember. It was so long ago. I mean, you know, not, none of them were best. Well, Moneyball was a bestseller, 
but it was a hard adaptation. So I don't, I don't think any of them really, you know, broke the bank or cost a lot of money. They weren't, they weren't, if I remember correctly, like Moneyball was the closest to being a bestseller in the traditional sense, but, but, you know, Michael Lewis's stuff is, is kind of, it stays on the charts for a long time, but it's like a slow burn. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I think that a lot of authors, when they they dream of having their uh, movie rights sold and what, um, you know, back when I first sold the rights to Party Girl, you could get decent option money. So nowadays it's sort of like options are kind of free. Am I am I just in that world? Do you see that as well? It's kind of yeah, it's it's like a lot of things in my industry. It's become feast or famine. Like if it's a if it's a giant bestseller or really buzzed about book, which happens less than it used to you can still get a bidding war going or getting, get an auction going, especially if talent gets attached first. Like for example, um, here at MGM, um, I was made aware of this book, uh, Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the book that The Martian is based on. And I loved it. And when it came to me, Ryan Gosling was already attached to it as a, the lead actor and a producer. So it was a little bit pre-packaged and I also knew that these directors, uh, Lord Miller, um, loved the book too, and Universal was trying to buy it for them. So I swooped in and bought it quickly, and then put Lord Miller on it for us. And it's kind of it's another kind of you know tentpole science fiction movie like The Martian was. And this guy Drew Goddard, who adapted The Martian, adapted our book too. So it's kind of a reunion of Andy Weir and Drew Goddard. But that book, because of the talent that was interested did create kind of a bidding situation. And sometimes when publishing companies or authors can prepackage this stuff with, with, with cinematic talent before it goes to the studios, you can generate a big price. Other than those books or books by famous authors that, you know, that are, have a track record of bestsellers, you're in this, you're in this lower end of the, or lower, lower rung of the ladder where you, there is a lot of like petitioning by studios for free options. And a lot, a lot more of that goes on for sure. And then and then the money can come when the movie is actually made. Right. But the number of books option versus the number of do you do you even know the percentage? It's terribly depressing, I'm sure. I mean, given the state of development, the way it's always been, where like most developed projects never get made and most movies lose money. I It, it kind of makes sense. I get it. <laughs> But so Andy Weir is like the ultimate success story. And, and as you call her, Erica, as the rest of us call her, <laughs> you know, that these, that the, and especially the authors that, that listen to this podcast are primarily self or indie published, not, not household names. You know, they lived the ultimate fantasy, which is that they owned the rights and, and the books just became huge. Yeah. I mean, JK Rowling was kind of not self-published, but she came out of nowhere and generated the whole universe and, True, uh, but she was traditionally published. Right, right. Um, but but so what is the indie author to do? Like, you know, I have, um, you know, should they be, you know, they're like, my book is perfect for adaptation. Should they, like, they can't call up CAA and say like, hey, can we attach like your best actors? What should, what should they do? I wonder if there's, like, every agency has relationships with Ciceria Rights people at publishing houses. I think, you know, the, the easiest, although if you're self-publishing. Yeah. Finding out like what, I mean, it's hard, but finding out what producers or executives kind of have a reputation for scouring the, the self-published world. Cause there are those people that make it a business of make it their business to, because of Erica and things like that, looking for that next needle in a haystack. Like there are, there are executives and producers and lit managers who are scouring the independent, you know, book world, looking for that, 
that gem again and yeah. getting your getting that material to those people because they will look at it because they they don't want to risk miss, missing the next big thing. Um, that's like probably the the best path. Well, um, you don't have to say I'm here, but if you know those people, since as I just I just shared with you my new thing that I will be announcing on this podcast, the Hollywood Book Directory, and let's get it on the record. You thought it was really cool. I think it's really cool. I can't believe it does it doesn't exist already. <laughs> well, I can't believe the domain was that's amazing. amazing. First yeah. of all, so you heard it from Mike Deluca. The <laughs> Hollywood Book Directory is an amazing idea, but it's true because. I know that producers want to, there's no way there are so many millions of books being published all the time that there's no way to keep track of it if a publisher is not sending it to you. And there's no way for an indie author to get to Hollywood. So that's why it's the bridge. I will get back to you on that. I will actually add, we have, so we work with a book scout. There was a book scout, a dedicated book scout in New York for MGM. And I'm going to ask him, hey, who are the people at the different places that you might know of that that's kind of look in this indie world and self-publishing world. Well, thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you. So um, what else? Um, I mean, there's just, you've just got a wealth of experience in this actual adaptation world and the whole movie world. What am I not asking you that's relevant for an author who's interested in having their book made into a movie? I mean, I hate to say this because it's, it's, it get, it's not pure artistic thinking, but keeping an eye just on, what's commercial, what's, what's trending, what audiences look like they're gravitating towards. You know, I know it's, it's, you got to write your heart, but keeping an eye on commerciality or, 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 you know, I, by the way, I don't know if Erica did that. I don't know if JK Rowling did that, but it's, it, if you can do that or kind of just keep an eye on what's been selling, what, what movies do you like that were based on books that you see working and, you know, try to have, think, or conceptualize with a nod towards who you want the audience to be. Is it a big enough audience? Is this going to generate excitement from buyers? I'm sure they do that anyway, but it's a good thing to keep in mind. Like, is there a genre that's the most adaptable? Like, you know, it seems like Andy Weir with the science fiction thing. That's a good thing. I wish, no, I, I wish I knew how to do that. Like, what are there genres that are more adaptable than others? I mean, thrillers are, are very adaptable because I think people, I know that we, it, at the studios feel like the thriller where it's a puzzle that the audience gets to like try to put together. They people, thrillers are always when they're good are always work commercially. And you know, that it's a durable genre. And pe I think people just love that those puzzle pieces that they have to put together while they're watching a movie or the movie slightly ahead of them. Um, and there's not, we're, we're in such a tentpole and franchise obsessed environment that a lot of those just haven't gotten made lately. So I feel like that's an open lane that's underserved. Um, and the sci-fi, the event sci-fi movie, it's it's high stakes poker because those movies are original tent poles. They're not based on branded IP, although if the book's a bestseller, it's, it's kind of branded, but it's not Batman or Spider-Man. So getting a studio to spend like 150 million or more on an original piece of material, even if, even if it's based on a book, is always like sketchy, but it can happen. And, and those things do happen. More often than not, they want to do something like Dune, which has been around for a long time, or Lord of the Rings, which has been around for a long time. But fantasy and science fiction are durable genres, too. So let's say someone had a thriller idea. Is it better if they write the book um, or should they just write the script? It's well, if it's a, if they can write a good script, it's faster. <laughs> but it feels like, you know, you always hear it's like they want IP. Producers want IP, yeah. you know, so. Producers say that because the studios say like, Everybody wants it easy. Nobody wants to work. Like everybody wants the the risk bred out of the 
system. So of course, studios want branded IP. It makes their marketing departments happy because you don't have to do heavy lifting on creating an audience for something. You can just sell something that's worked before in another medium. But every once in a while, someone grows a pair and like does something original. And there are executives at each of the studios that really, you know, they can't tell their bosses they like original movies better than the, the 100th reboot of the same remake of the same IP. Right. And, and it's so relationship driven because you got to find those execs and find out which and agents are supposed to know this. And a lot of times they do and lit managers know where to bring original material. And, you know, sometimes the stars can align and someone will take a shot with something, but it's great to prepackage stuff. If you have an ambassador, you know, a talent piece of talent or a director that the studios want to work with um, it comes in the door, not just as naked development, but has some building blocks that, that execs can latch onto and not feel like it's so random or, you know, uh, um, left to chance. But realistically, what are there, 20, 20 actors or, you know, t- pieces of talent that mean something? I mean, that's that's the other feast or famine part. Like, yes, having attachments is great, but there's such a tiny percentage of names that mean anything, right? Well, the, the good news is um, that used to be the case when the business was purely theatrical. But, you know, right now, as you as you probably know, we're in the middle of like what they call the streaming wars. So. Yeah there are billions and billions of dollars being flooded into content creation because Disney is racing Netflix, HBO Max is racing Disney, you know, Apple and Amazon are racing Netflix. Like everybody's outspending everybody else for volume because that's the only way to grow your subscriber base. And that's causing a lot of things to get made and a lot of diverse things. It's not just movies for movie theaters anymore. There's, so many movies and limited series and series for a streaming that it's a great, I think it's a great time to be a content creator. And the list of actors has broadened because what, what may not open a movie for a paying audience in a movie theater work quite well in the algorithms that all these streamers use for their green light decisions. So the, it's a broader spectrum. Um, if you're not, you know, just focused on a movie that's going to play in theaters. What's a theater? I forget. <laughs> Like oh, it breaks my heart, but yeah, you're right. I know, but it's true. Um, well, Mike, this has been fantastic. I can't oh. thank you enough for doing this. It's so fun. Thanks for thinking of me. Um, yeah, so it, you all, thank you for listening. How fabulous. First of all, I'm glad we ended on such a high note. It's the best time of all to be a content creator. I think and, it is. <laughs> and also, you know, studios are spending $150 million on movies. And billions, yeah, the streamers are spending billions, billions to make everything. <laughs> make everything. You make it sound so easy and it's so hard. <laughs> you know how hard it is. But anyway, thank you so much and thanks you all for listening. I will talk to you next week. Thanks for joining me this week on Entrepreneur Publishing Academy with Anna David. For more info about the show, go to entrepreneurpublishing.academy where you can get links to show notes and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, and all the other places. Speaking of those places, if you got anything out of this show, I can't tell you how much I'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. And please, don't forget you can tell an author or entrepreneur friend about the show. Another forget-me-not, my company, Legacy Launchpad Publishing, is available to help industry leaders and those with stories to share at any stage in their publishing journeys, whether that's writing, editing, or publishing, just go to legacylaunchpadpub.com to find out more. And 
Be sure to tune in next week for well, next week's episode. You know, if you subscribe, you never have to worry about missing one.